With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, this is Dory Clark, and I am here on behalf of Newsweek. We are doing a special series on creating the economy of the future. And this week, our topic is the global challenge of climate change. We are interviewing Dr. Fatih Birol. He is the executive director of the International Energy Agency. And we're going to be talking about the latest developments and ways that we can all prepare for the challenge of climate change in a special series presented by the government of Japan. Dr. Birol, welcome and great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Excellent. So, I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation with you about climate change. The, the very first question that I have is, as a layperson, I know that a number of years ago, there was a big drumbeat, uh, political uh, uh, gathering, saying that we should all try as a culture to reduce our uh, carbon dioxide in the environment to 350 parts per million and that if we if we did not reduce it to that level basically we we were all going to be in really dire straits now as i understand it even in 2020 when uh when people weren't driving people weren't flying people weren't going places because of the pandemic the amount of carbon dioxide in the environment rose to well above that it, i believe it was 412 and a half parts per million so are are we completely in in are are we completely in a dire situation here? Is there any way out of this? What is your perspective on this? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we are definitely not on the right path is the uh, our uh, planet because when we look at the numbers which we do at the IEA, our emissions year on year, they are increasing. And they are increasing and reaching dangerous levels. What does it mean, dangerous levels? It means we will see much more uh, extreme weather events. And those extreme weather events will be much intense than what we had uh, before. Uh, this will affect everybody. This will affect Africa, this will affect Asia, North America, across the world. And the weather events uh, will be unpredictable. And here, energy sector plays a central role. Why? Very simple. The 80% of the emissions causing climate change comes from the energy sector, 80%. So it means without fixing the problem, in the energy sector without reducing the emissions drastically in the energy sector, we have no chance whatsoever to have a planet which is more or less like uh, today in the next few years to come. And a huge challenge for this, but also next uh, generations. The way to solve this problem goes through finding clean 
energy technologies, clean energy choices for uh, producing and consuming uh, energy. So this is the challenge we are facing today. Thank you so much. We're here with Dr. Fatih Birol. He's the executive director of the International Energy Agency. You can learn more about their work at IEA.org. And Dr. Birol has uh, has a great distinction. This is one of my favorites here. Uh, the Financial Times named him the Energy Personality of the Year. So that's that's got to be one of the cooler honors in the energy world. Congratulations on Thank that. Um, so Dr. Birol, one question that I have for you, you're you're mentioning that 80% of these emissions are coming from the energy sector. One of the things that's, of course, been in the news recently is Russia and the conflict in Ukraine. There's a lot of speculation that this may end up disrupting the global energy supply. Already, gas prices in the United States are are going up pretty dramatically. I believe that the the price now is over three fifty per gallon, uh, which is quite high, and about a dollar per gallon more than it was even just a year ago. And we recently have seen that uh, Germany is cutting off the Nord Two pipeline. Uh, so it seems like there's going to be some real potential for disruption in the marketplace given geopolitical events. How do you see things shaking out in the near future? Yeah. So uh, energy prices are high, not only in the United States, but also in Europe, in Asia, India, Japan, Korea, everywhere. And this is mainly driven by the very fact that after COVID, you mentioned the COVID uh, crisis, global energy demand increased very, very strongly. And the, the increasing demand was not met with enough production, supply, oil and gas. For example, in Europe, we have huge gas prices, natural gas prices. The reason is very strong demand coming after uh, COVID, economic activity became stronger. Strong economic activity means uh, more energy. But the, there was not enough uh, gas delivered to Europe, mainly by Russia. Russia is the main uh, exporter of uh, gas to Europe. But as a result of the uh, Russian uh, policies, Russian exports to Europe declined. Why one uh, wanted to see even higher than uh, previous levels, it was much lower than the previous levels. As a result of that, we have seen an artificial tightness of the markets, and this bumped the prices up. So uh, while we had an energy world, while we had a major challenge of climate change, now we have another problem, which is the geopolitics. The uh, recent uh, messages and actions of uh, Russia meant that the energy and geopolitics may well be much more interwoven in the next months and years to come, and it will definitely complicate the energy questions in a, 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 a difficult way. 
Thank you, Dr. Barol. This is Fatih Barol. He is the executive director of the International Energy Agency, joining us as part of our special Newsweek series on creating the economy of the future. I'm Dory Clark. And if you're tuning in live, please feel free to type into the chat box and let us know who you are, where you're dialing in from, and any questions that you have for Dr. Barol on the global challenge of climate change. Now, Dr. Barol, one question that I have is nuclear and the role of nuclear power. This is something that for for decades has divided environmentalists. Some people say that this is really critical to the path toward clean energy. Other people uh, scarred by Three Mile Island and Chernobyl uh, say that it's just too dangerous. Um, What do you think about the role of nuclear power in climate change? Yeah. So uh, when we look at the future, uh, we have, of course, uh, in the future, we will have still oil, we will have still gas, uh, we'll have other energy sources, but future is electric. Electricity will dominate uh, the way we use energy, we consume uh, energy. And where will the electricity come from? So I would say a big chunk of the electricity will come from uh, renewable energies, solar, uh, wind, hydropower, and others. But I also see an important role for nuclear power in the countries where it is uh, accepted. The issue with nuclear power is it can generate electricity, uninterrupted electricity, with no emissions released. It's a clean electricity uh, generation uh, source. And uh, as you rightly mentioned, um, as a result of uh, several incidents, uh, the last one being uh, Fukushima, we have seen uh, nuclear energy, appetite for nuclear energy uh, went down. However, as I have recently uh, uh, stated, I see nuclear is going to make a comeback uh, strongly. First, there are countries who have now prioritized uh, nuclear power in their uh, energy plans. United States, Canada, France, where where I live, uh, President Macron came with a very strong nuclear uh, program, but uh, also Netherlands, the new governments in Netherlands, in uh, China, India, uh, and several European countries are pushing the uh, nuclear power also driven by the volatility of the natural gas markets. It also reminded the several policymakers and also citizens that the uh, nuclear power, uh, if you have it at home, you are not a part of the geopolitical games we are seeing. But in addition to the the traditional nuclear power uh, uh, we have, the systems, power plants we have, there is and new nuclear technology, which we call small modular reactors. What does it mean? It means they are their sizes much smaller, easier to build, their waste issue is uh, easier to tackle, and also they are much easier to finance in a short period of time. One of the biggest challenges of nuclear power, in addition to what you said, there is a, a uh, there was a bit of a hesitance from uh, the citizens in some countries, not everywhere, but in some countries, uh, 
a this a, in addition to that challenge the nuclear power plants the classical nuclear power plants are difficult to finance because they require huge amount of financing and they to construct those nuclear powers you require many many years but with the small modular reactors i mentioned to you their construction time will be much shorter and you need less finance to uh, bring them uh, to the market so i uh, expected the nuclear power will be an integral part of the future electricity mix even though the uh, the lion's share of our electricity generation in the future will be belonging to uh, renewable energies and i see a good uh, marriage and the happy one i should say between uh, renewables and uh, nuclear power Thank you very much. We're here with Fatih Barol. He's the executive director of the International Energy Agency. And this is a special series by Newsweek on creating the economy of the future. I'm Dory Clark. So, Dr. Barol, let's turn for a moment to renewables. Now, for many years, the challenge with, with wind power, with solar power, was that it was just too expensive and it cost too much to create energy from those sources to be economical without a lot of subsidies. That situation seems to have changed dramatically and the costs have really come down. Can you talk a little bit about the current state of renewable energy and how that factors in to some of the, the energy mix that you're seeing for the future? Yeah, uh, you are right. Uh, wind and solar were very expensive 10, 15 years ago. But as a result of, as we call it, learning by doing. So the more we bring a uh, new solar uh, electricity, solar panels uh, to the markets, uh, the companies, manufacturers learn to produce them uh, cheaper. Today, uh, solar energy is one of the cheapest source of electricity generation in many uh, countries. Ten years ago, when we talk about the uh, solar, it was more or less a romantic story. But it's not many romantic, it's a main business in many countries. And in fact, when we look at the uh, numbers, uh, last year, uh, about 60% of all the new power plants built in the world were, were solar, followed by wind. So this is uh, not necessarily to address the climate change issue. It is basically because it's a cheap source of electricity generation. So uh, I believe uh, solar and wind will be a key drivers of the future electricity generation everywhere in the world, in Africa, in India, in uh, Asia, uh, in North America and Europe. Uh, but uh, the challenge with the solar and wind is their availability is nature bound. So if you don't have sun, you don't have uh, electricity, basically, to put in a simple terms. If you don't have wind, then you don't have electricity. So therefore, nuclear can play a, a good role here to complement uh, the uh, solar and wind electricity generation because for nuclear you just push the button and it generates electricity uh, for you 24 uh, uh, 7 and i think uh, while the renewables will have the lion's share nuclear in the countries where it is accepted it uh, can play an uh, important role as well 
That's really interesting. Thank you very much, Dr. Fatih Barol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. He also chairs the Energy Advisory Board for the World Economic Forum. So a question that I have is I would love to hear more about your perspective on experimental strategies around both energy and climate change. We sometimes hear uh, ideas that sound appealing, although uh, a layman may wonder how technically feasible they are about things like burying carbon dioxide deep in the earth or perhaps newfangled methods of energy creation. Can you talk a little bit about what you see on the horizon, both in the energy sphere and with regard to uh, protecting against climate change? So uh, there are uh, numerous uh, such uh, candidates of breakthrough technologies. Some of them see the light of today, many of them don't. But uh, some of the uh, uh, rather promising ones, uh, you mentioned one of them, which is capturing the carbon and putting it under the earth. We call it carbon capture and sequestration uh, technology which could be very helpful to use fossil energies in a, a environmental friendly way because the issue is today uh, why uh, coal or gas and oil uh, seem to be creating challenges for climate change uh, because they are emitting carbon dioxide emissions if this technology the carbon capture technology during this process, while you use oil or gas or coal, can uh, suck up the carbon from them and put it under the earth. If they can be used in a, a environmental friendly uh, way, we could uh, have a major advantage in terms of our energy sector at the same time addressing climate change. Another one came uh, several years ago, uh, many people thought it will not be a, 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 a good solution, which is the electric cars, uh, because they were very expensive. But today, we are seeing the electric cars uh, are becoming a mainstream uh, transportation uh, uh, instrument in many countries. In China, 20% of all the cars sold last year were electric cars. The same in Europe, about 20%. I expect that in the United States, very soon, we will see electric cars uh, will be seen more frequently on the uh, roads because uh, several car manufacturers now uh, prioritize uh, electric cars as their uh, next uh, models they want to put in the, in, the, in the market. So there are many disruptive technologies some of them will see the uh, light of the day, some of them will not. And the criteria here is whether or not they're economic and they make the life of the consumers uh, uh, more comfortable, uh, more convenient. And at the same time, whether or not they will be part of our fight against uh, climate change. Thank you very much. We're talking about the global challenge of climate change. This is part of a special Newsweek series on creating the economy of the future. We're here with Dr. Fatih Barol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. You can learn more about their work at IEA.org. Dr. Barol has been named uh, by Forbes one of the most influential people in the world of energy. And Dr. Barol, uh, I'm curious about the role that the pandemic played in all of this. We, we all know that especially during 
2020, parts of 2021, for most of us, um, fuel usage, energy usage went down. We weren't driving into the office. We weren't flying and traveling as much because there were global travel bans. Um, certainly that impacted uh, in many ways energy usage. Did that actually allow for a bit of a, a reset? Or what, what would you say are the impacts of the pandemic on these issues? Have we, have we already rebounded to where we were before? Or has this allowed us to begin to take stock in some way? I, uh, to be honest with you, uh, the bad thing about my job is that I have to be realistic. I have to believe in numbers rather than the hopes and the feelings during the pandemic when the emissions went down uh, because of the reasons you mentioned uh, we didn't travel uh, the economic activity went down and therefore emissions went down many people thought many commentators now we have seen that we can uh, save the planet we learn from this and it will be again when we look at the future it will be such a life and i said unless governments take the necessary measures uh, people will go back uh, what they were doing uh, before not that i don't have a trust in the uh, human beings but this is the unless you give a signal to the human beings they behave uh, uh, what is the best uh, solution for them and today in fact uh, unfortunately emissions today are worse than before the pandemic, much higher uh, than that. Uh, but uh, to balance it with the with an optimistic note, uh, I also see that as a result of what is happening in the with the renewables, what is happening with the uh, the uh, electric cars, what is happening with the lot of efficiency uh, digitalization measures? What is happening with the small model uh, nuclear uh, reactors? I see that a new global energy economy is emerging. So uh, this is, uh, you cannot stop this. So uh, I believe the next chapter of the uh, global economy will belong to the clean energy technologies and the countries or companies who are not able to read the game what is happening the transition uh, here may well be in a disadvantageous position and may be locked in with the obscure obscure technologies and will not be the part of the a new chapter of the clean energy system of the future so we have to see uh, what the future is what today is and what past was really good point thank you we have a, a question from a viewer and uh, if you have questions please feel free to type them into the chat box for dr fatih birol we're talking about the global challenge of climate change but adnan was curious do you think that the the russia and ukraine conflict will cause countries to reimagine their energy policy might this actually be uh, a net positive because comp because countries that are faced with a specter of disruption may decide to make different long-term choices what are your thoughts i think this is an excellent uh, question uh, the russia's uh, uh, act uh, in the last few days of course this is not a good news for the peace 
This is not uh, good news uh, for the uh, uh, geopolitical stability. This is definitely not a good news for the Ukrainian uh, people, also for the Russian uh, people. But this may well bring a shock for the European governments, especially for uh, Europe, which may lead them to redesign their energy policies. Because uh, the gas is used a lot during the winter times uh, for heating uh, uh, purposes. We are coming uh, slowly but surely end of winter. But next winter will come. And if the Europe still uh, is depending 40% of its gas from uh, Russia, next winter we may see the same movie again. Therefore, it is not time for Europe. It's an important wake-up call to redesign, reprioritize their energy policies, look at the other options that they have. Uh, here, uh, again, uh, I come back to the renewables, hydrogen, nuclear power, energy efficiency, all of these options, which one hand, uh, the improve the energy security, but on the other hand, prepare those countries' economies for the next chapter of their energy systems. So at the end of the day, why it's a very bad news uh, what's happening uh, today in the geopolitical context uh, for uh, the people of uh, Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere, it may provide a, a, a silver lining for the European energy policy playing a wake-up call, very strong wake-up call for the uh, governments for the energy policy design. Really helpful. Thank you very much, Dr. Fatih Birol. He's here uh, for a special series that Newsweek is doing on creating the economy of the future. I'm Dory Clark. And Dr. Birol, we have a question that came in from a viewer. Uh, Eric is actually curious and wants to know if you can speak a little bit more about hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, for those who are not familiar with them, what are hydrogen fuel cells and what role do you see them playing in the future of clean energy? So, uh, hydrogen is a uh, old technology, but it became uh, more fashionable uh, recently. Uh, when I look at uh, talk with the governments around the world, almost every government has a hydrogen strategy. Everybody loves hydrogen. It's very unusual in the energy world because there are always uh, different uh, views. Some people like this technology, the other one dislikes. But when it comes to hydrogen, everybody likes uh, hydrogen. And the hydrogen fuel cells can be another important uh, uh, alternative to our current cars uh, we have uh, in the in the world. About ninety-five percent of the cars, which is which we call internal combustion engine cars, the cars we are uh, driving uh, around the world today. And hydrogen fuel cells can be another option in order to replace uh, the current uh, cars uh, around the world, in addition to the electric cars. Many uh, companies uh, around the world, uh, car manufacturers, in addition to electric cars, they are also having some uh, new uh, models uh, which can be run uh, by uh, hydrogen. And this can be also another alternative to our current uh, car uh, uh, choices. Thank you very much. 
So another question that comes up often when we talk about climate change treaties and international cooperation around energy is questions of equity with regard to developing nations. Uh, many developing countries look to the global superpowers, the developed economies, and say, it isn't fair. You were able to build up over over decades, over hundreds of years on the back of cheap energy, of coal and other things that, that are perhaps not clean energy sources, but were affordable and available. And now you're asking us to adhere to environmentally strict standards now that there is a global problem. Obviously, we all want uh, a cleaner environment. We want to prevent climate change. But how do you think through some of these equity considerations with regard to developed versus developing nations? I think that point of view is uh, is a very legitimate one. The current climate problem is not as a result of uh, this year or last year emissions. It is a a accumulation of... uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since 100 years. For example, during the Industrial Revolution in Europe, we use a lot of coal, and they are uh, they went to atmosphere, these emissions, they are still there. You mentioned the 350 ppm. Some of them are coming from those days from Europe, from North America, and also uh, some of them are coming from uh, China, and they are in the atmosphere. And uh, now uh, we have to clean it up. And the cleaning up uh, means all countries should be part of the uh, solution. So the, the the dilemma here is the following. One ton of emissions going to atmosphere from Jakarta or from Detroit or from Paris or from Stockholm or from Johannesburg, it has the same effect on everybody. Emissions don't have a passport. So, for example, in Europe... If we bring the emissions down substantially, if the emissions are still high in the rest of the world, Europe will not be immune to the effects of climate change. So this is a race uh, uh, against the time. And it's also a race that if everybody doesn't finish the race, nobody wins the race. So therefore, it is very important that the developing countries a, a decisions in terms of energy are also uh, preferring the clean energy options. But many developing countries do not have the means to invest in clean energy options. And here, I think it is a, a moral duty. And financially, also it makes sense that the advanced economies, rich countries, provide support to emerging countries in order to help them uh, to mobilize clean energy uh, options, that says renewables, efficiency, and other clean energy uh, options. And at the same time, the multilateral development banks, such as the World Bank, uh, the regional development banks, should provide a catalyst role in order to mobilize investment in the emerging uh, world this can those countries cannot be left alone uh, in the fight against uh, climate change thank you very much we're here with dr fatih barol he's the executive director of the international energy agency you can learn more at iea.org we're here talking for newsweek about the global challenge of climate change 
Now, a question on my mind, Dr. Barol, and maybe uh, others as well, is the question of entrenched interests here. Obviously, there are many very wealthy companies that have built up over time their oil companies, their gas companies, their coal companies. They make a lot of money from selling uh, energy sources that that are not clean, that are that are heavily polluting. I'm curious, in terms of, of your experience and what you're seeing out there, um, one would imagine that there would be a lot of resistance to making the change to cleaner sources, which may prove potentially to be less lucrative. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this transition and what role companies are playing. Um, has there been a lot of pushback or are there actually bright spots on the horizon where companies are, are stepping up to help enable the transition to cleaner energy sources? So uh, you are right there, oil, gas, and coal companies, uh, some of them are uh, uh, rather uh, hesitant to be a part of the clean energy transition. Some of them are, uh, uh, to be very frank, pushing it back uh, because a company's uh, job is to make money. Uh, when you look at the, uh, the uh, philosophy uh, there, but uh, and these companies are not only in the uh, Western world. Uh, there are Western world companies, of course, but there are companies in Middle East, in uh, Russia, in I don't know the other parts of the world. Uh, all the companies, of course, uh, they want to make money. However, I can assure you that no company, but no company will be unaffected by clean energy transition. It is coming, whatever they want. Uh, uh, you can uh, cut the grass, but you cannot stop uh, uh, the spring coming. So this, this is coming. Uh, I am seeing uh, this every day when we look at the numbers. And there are some of the companies, I should uh, be very frank, they are also trying to transform their company's budget strategies to be compatible with the clean energy transitions. And we need them. Because those companies know how to manage huge, big uh, projects, uh, engineering projects. They have deep pockets. They have expertise uh, on different technologies. Uh, some of the technologies you just mentioned, for example, carbon capture and storage. It's a very complicated but a critically important technology. If the energy companies uh, are uh, were to dive into this, and uh, promote those uh, technologies, this will be good for their business, and they would be also on the right side of the history. And I can tell you that I see many companies, energy companies, uh, in addition to their uh, jobs of main jobs of oil, uh, gas, and coal uh, production, they are uh, increasingly interested in the carbon capture and storage, offshore uh, wind, uh, in solar energy, and others. Uh, but if you ask me whether or not this is a main trend in the energy companies, I would say no. Some companies are doing a better job than the others. But uh, I would also uh, warn those companies that the, they should really be careful. If they stick very much to their uh, traditional business, their assets may well be left standard in the future, and they may have uh, some... Uh, major financial losses as well. That's an important caveat. We're here with Dr. Fatih Birol. He's with the International Energy Agency. 
And this is Newsweek. We're doing a special series on the economy of the future. So I am curious, Dr. Barul, you have actually been with the International Energy Agency for multiple decades. You've been involved very deeply in this field. I would love to get a sense from you of a longitudinal perspective. Over the past several decades, obviously in terms of climate change itself, and we were talking earlier about the parts uh, per million of carbon dioxide concentration, which is considered a kind of warning signal with regard to global warming, um, that's moving in the wrong direction. But I'm curious, is is everything moving in the wrong direction? How has the, the cultural conversation changed around issues of energy and, and climate during the time that you've been involved? in the field um, to be very frank uh, in the uh, when i look at the last uh, 20 years i did not see a major change in terms of thinking uh, uh, as far as the climate change concern until last few years there was of course sensitivities there there was also attention was paid to climate change but it was not a major or determining factor when it comes to energy policy decisions uh, as far as climate change is concerned. But in the last few years, I am seeing that the, uh, the interest in climate change is growing. It, it, there are two reasons for that. One, the governments have understood how important it is to preserve our planet. And this is uh, very important. And here I should say that not only governments suddenly discovered the climate change, but there, there were different factors, such, such as the, uh, the youth played a critical role here, governments to think in this way. Second, there were several extreme weather events as a result of, as the scientists say, climate change. Climate change reminded itself to us that it's a major threat for uh, all of us. And these two uh, uh, factors were combined with the very fact that the uh, several uh, clean energy options are becoming economically viable. Solar, wind, electric cars, efficiency, some of the nuclear plants and, uh, and others. So uh, as a result, the last 20 years, I didn't see much, but in the last few years, there is a growing interest in the energy policy making in terms of taking climate change into consideration when you take a decision. So this makes me uh, rather hopeful for the future. That's certainly good to hear. And amidst all of this, it's perhaps easy for an individual to feel a little bit overwhelmed. Obviously, uh, there's not a huge amount that one person can do to impact things like global energy usage. But I'm curious, if you were advising someone who is a concerned citizen about something that they could do, some step that they could personally take an influence that might in some way make a contribution to fighting climate change, what would you recommend for that person? What would actually be useful? I can give you two things, one a political and uh, one a daily life. Politically, I would uh, uh, vote for uh, the governments, political parties, who pay attention to climate change in a realistic way. So it, I, would be, uh, I would be taking this climate change 
sensitivity of the political parties when I put my uh, vote in the election. This is one. As a person, uh, I would uh, suggest uh, them what I am doing, uh, for example, in terms of transportation, choose as much as possible public transport. And if you have to buy a car, a private car, uh, I would uh, go for electric cars or hydrogen uh, uh, cars uh, in order to reduce the carbon uh, footprint because transportation sector is definitely one of the most polluting uh, sectors. Very helpful advice. We are beginning to wind down our conversation. We probably have time for just about one more question. This is Dory Clark. We've been here on behalf of Newsweek as part of a special series throughout the month of February, sponsored by the government of Japan. We've been discussing creating the economy of the future. And today's topic is the global challenge of climate change. Speaking with Dr. Fatih Birol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. Dr. Birol, a question that I love to ask policy experts such as yourself, if you ruled the world, if you had the proverbial magic wand and you could actually make uh, a, a policy change, you know, maybe not 10, but if you could make a policy change unilaterally that you felt like would make the biggest difference in terms of improving our transition to clean energy sources and making, you know, helping to fight back against climate change, what would that be? So uh, when you say uh, you mention uh, Japan, for example, when I think of Japan uh, and the energy policies or energy history of Japan, innovation was a very important factor in terms of Japanese uh, energy achievements. So if I had a, a chance uh, uh, globally, I would have loved to see that the all countries around the world would pay enough attention to research and development of clean energy technologies and pushing the magic button of innovation so that we can have technologies which are clean, which are affordable, and uh, which also helps us not to have such geopolitical tensions we have now. So uh, I wish that the many countries around the world uh, would provide enough funds for the research and development for clean energy technologies, such as uh, Japan and other countries. Research and development is certainly going to be an important part of the picture. Thank you so much for that. We're here with Dr. Fatih Birol. He has joined us. Uh, he is the executive director of the International Energy Agency, and we've been talking about the global challenge of climate change. Thank you very much, Dr. Brohl, and thank you to everyone for tuning in. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.